We've been talking the last three weeks about angels, and uh, as I said, Jesus talks about angels more than anybody else in the Bible. Angels are mentioned 253 times in God's Word. In the book of Revelation, we're told that they are innumerable, 10,000 times 10,000. So their numbers are incredibly great. They are created by God, and they have specific purposes. They are individuals. They are something we don't fully understand, but the Scripture is very clear that they exist and have purposes. And we've talked about, really, you can kind of put their purposes into three main categories if you wanted to. There may be others, but for sake of our conversation, it's appropriate to say that they are worshipers. and They worship God and they glorify Him. And we saw that in Isaiah chapter 6 where the seraphim and the cherubim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And, and obviously when Jesus was born and the angels filled the sky with the glory of God and said, glory to God on the highest. So they're worshipers. They're also witnesses. They are there to proclaim what is happening. As, as we said, the angel proclaimed to Mary that she would give birth, proclaimed to Joseph uh, that Jesus was going to be born and he was of the Holy Spirit, proclaimed to Joseph that he should flee and go to Egypt, and proclaimed to the shepherds that they should go and see Jesus in the manger. And many other times, angels are witnesses to God's activity and participants in the messenger of God's activity. But this morning, we're going to look at a third area of work of angels, and they are really warriors in, in every sense. Now, we want to be careful that we don't worship angels. I think one of the reasons sometimes, especially in Protestant churches and Baptist churches, we sort of don't talk much about them is, is we're, we're reluctant because people tend to want to worship angels and talk about angels all the time rather than God, who is the focus of the worship, the one who created them. But that doesn't mean we ignore them and that they're not there because they truly are and they're truly real. And as I said, and I, maybe it bears repeating, I, I, angels don't resemble anything like we see them in the culture, in the paintings, in the drawings, in, in Christmas cards, in, in little Christmas plays we have. And they are around us all the time. And we're going to look at that in just a minute in this one scripture. And you just sang a song about it that's based on the scripture that we're going to look at. You know, if you watch uh, science on television and, and if you like to think about science and, and the universe and, and, and how vast and, and gigantic and, and glorious and beautiful and intricate the universe is, and the more we learn about it, the, the larger and the more glorious and more beautiful it is. And oftentimes people say, do you think, you think we're alone here? Are we the only ones in this whole universe? And I generally say, well, of course not. <laughs> I mean, you look out across the universe, and, and there's not a void out there. God is there, and the angels are there. Multitude, innumerable numbers. It's not a vast emptiness in this universe. God and inhabitants that the angels inhabited that he created, they're all around us. Now, we're not going to talk this morning about the angels that fell, but a third of the angels followed Lucifer and fell out of heaven, and those are demons. We'll talk about that some other time. But the two-thirds of angels that, 
that are with God do genuinely, genuinely fill every place. And the scripture makes it clear that, that they are here among us, even this morning and when you're at home. And, and we talked a little bit about, well, we'll talk some more this morning, a little bit about the idea of angels protecting us. And indeed they do. I don't think we say we each have a guardian angel assigned to us. But there's no doubt the scripture makes it clear that angels are there to protect us. And we have no idea how many times they have done that. We could fill the whole morning with documented stories like the one I'm about to share with you. A very familiar one, but a documented one. John MacArthur shares this directly in one of his books. He talks about John Patton, a missionary. And this missionary was in the New Guinea area of the Indian Ocean. He tells a story about some angelic care that he received. This was years ago. One night, John recalls that He was surrounded by some hostile folks who weren't happy at all that missionaries were there. And they surrounded them, and they were making it clear and known that they were going to kill them, take them away and kill them, as has happened to missionaries on many occasions. John and his wife were there alone, and they got on their knees and just began to pray, realizing there was no way they could protect themselves from what was about to happen and were willing to submit to whatever God would do with their life. But they prayed for protection. All of a sudden, the natives surrounded that little house near the beach. But moments later, a large crowd of hostile individuals just walked away and left. Later on, not long after that, someone inquired of the chief of that group, why did you just walk away from that older couple that you were going to take that night? This is what he said, documented. The chief said they'd seen many men standing guard, in fact, hundreds of men in really shining clothes circling the missionary's house. I could give you many stories like that over and over again. Now, you can, you can throw it away. You can say it's not really true. You can say that's just legend. But the Scripture says differently. And one of the scriptures we're going to look at really says differently. So take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Kings in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Kings in chapter 6. And a very similar story to what I just said that's a relatively contemporary story. Here's one from generations ago. Again, very similar. In 2 Kings chapter 6, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, verse 8, 
He took his counsel with his servants, and at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel. This is what he said. Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself and more than once or twice. Verse 11, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> in other words, the king of Syria says, Who is telling the Israelites where we're going? Who is that? He said, well, it's Elijah. He's a prophet. He knows everything. He even knows the things you say in private. Verse 14. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. They're going to take Elijah. All right? The most powerful king in the region sends his most powerful forces to take Elijah. Verse 15. And they surrounded the city. Verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God rose, Elijah, early in the morning, and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elijah's servant wakes up, and he looks, and they're surrounded, not unlike the missionary John Patton we just talked about. And they're completely surrounded with the most powerful army in the region, to have one thing, one objective, and that is to take Elisha. Horses and chariots. And I, I don't think we really understand today the significance of chariot warfare. It, it was like being surrounded, literally, I'm not exaggerating this, it would be like being surrounded by tanks. Chariots were really the, sort of the tanks of their day. They could move very rapidly and very fast. And you could, you could obviously shoot from them as you rode, and they were overwhelming to any army. And one of the reasons the Egyptians were so successful in warfare early on is they learned how to really use chariots in warfare. And in these days, there was really nothing more terrifying to an enemy army than an army of chariots. So think about that. Don't think about something that's ancient and not very powerful. But this would be overwhelming, a sense of being surrounded literally by tanks, something you cannot defeat. And so here he looks up and he sees this huge army. The mountain was full of horses and chariots all around. And he said, Alas, Master Elisha, what shall we do? In verse 16, Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We could just go home right now. Elisha says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servant looks around and goes, who in the world is with us? It's me and some other guys. And that's the way we live our life in this world. What we see with our human eyes, it always appears that we are outnumbered, overwhelmed, about to be overtaken. 
And it causes us to live in a sense of anxiety and fear and dread constantly. And that's exactly where the adversary wants you to be. Because when you and I live in fear and dread and anxiety, we're not trusting the Lord. We're not living in Him. We're not enjoying Him. We're not celebrating Him. We're not making much of Him. We're not happy. We're not joyful. We're not showing to the world that we have something that is absolutely sustainable no matter what happens. What we're telling the world is, we're just like you. We're scared to death too. And so the servant looks up and he sees this great army surrounding him of chariots and horses and they've got one thing in mind, they're going to come and take him. And he says, what are we going to do? Elisha says, it doesn't matter, we way outnumber them. Those with us are far stronger than those with them. What am I going to do? I've lost my job. What am I going to do? I've lost my spouse. All these years, I've had, to, I've had to bury them. What am I going to do? I've, I've lost a child. What am I going to do? I've had a diagnosis of a terminal disease, or my loved one has, or I'm going to have to spend these many last years of my life as a primary caregiver. That's the nature of life. It is very challenging and very difficult, and, and very, it, it doesn't get easier this side of heaven for any of us. But the reality is quite simple. You're not alone. You're never alone. Not for one instance, not for one minute. First of all, Jesus said, if you're his child, he said, I will never leave you. I will come to you. I will send the comforter and he will come to you. And that word comforter, paraclete, means one who comes in strength and in power. The Holy Spirit never leaves you. He is with you constantly. He is, he is God and he is present with you all the time in your darkest hour, in your most lonesome hour. At the moment of your death, he'll never leave you. You are never alone. In addition to that, we are surrounded, we know by this army of angels who are constantly doing what God calls them to do. And if God determines that they should protect us, they will. And at the point of our death, what do those angels do? They carry us to the very presence of Jesus. You're not alone. And so those who are with us are far greater than those who are against us. And look, I know you drive down the street and you see a little church and it looks dysfunctional. And it is dysfunctional because I got news for you. You're dysfunctional. And until Jesus comes again or you go to heaven, you're going to be dysfunctional. And you see this little dysfunctional church and sometimes they fuss and they fight. and Sometimes they split. And sometimes they start other churches. And the city looks at them and says, oh, they're just a bunch of, I don't know what they are. Just people who go to church and think they're better than everybody else, but they're really not. And And meanwhile, the culture just seems to go off the rails and becomes less and less godly and less and less Christ-honoring, becomes more and more, we know, like what Satan would like. We could go on for hours about that. And so you look at the church and, and the world and the culture and, and you see all its faults and all of its failures and some of its leaders who have tremendous failure and, and the churches who sometimes struggle to get along and struggle to make any difference in the community. And seemingly, it's seemingly the, it seems like the whole momentum of the culture is not with the church. Well, it never has been. But let me tell you something. <laughs> Think about it with me. Just... just Go around the world and you go to these massive cities and there aren't any 
you know, you don't see any churches to speak of. And, and someone will say, hey, I want to take you to, to a church. And maybe, maybe in, in Bangladesh or in Singapore or, or, or some primarily Muslim Arab country. And they take you to this little out-of-the-way place. And here's a little gathering of 30 or 40 believers, maybe in a city of hundreds of thousands or more. They're a little out-of-the-way place, and they have no influence on the culture, no influence on the politics. I mean, if anyone wanted to, they could possibly come and take them away and arrest them. You know what it's like in China. You've read about that, the underground church in China. So if you take you to these places and you see these sort of small, little insignificant groups of people in these huge mega cities, or you look in our culture and you see churches everywhere, but they seem to be dysfunctional, they're not really having any impact on the culture at all, and... One day, you know, one day, one day that eastern sky is going to open up. And one day there's going to be a trumpet that's going to be heard all over the world at the same time. And one day every eye is going to look to heaven. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Because when he comes back with his angels, there's not going to be any doubt who's in charge. And those dysfunctional, broken churches that we see on every corner are going to be immediately transformed into the beautiful, perfected bride of Christ. And those little churches in those, in those huge cities that no one pays any attention to are going to rise like the beautiful bride of Christ. And at that point in that time, for those who have rejected the Lord, it'll be too late. Yes, they'll confess that he is the Lord, but it's too late for them to be redeemed at that point. And those of us who are in Christ... And remain alive will rise. The dead in Christ will rise first, and the rest of us will rise to meet them in the air. And that day is a certainty. That's the victory that we have absolute certainty of. So when you look around and you see, man, we're outnumbered, we're overwhelmed, we're insignificant, you're just like the servant of Elijah saying, We're we're doomed. We can't put up with this. And Elijah goes, No, 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 we way outnumber them. You you don't know. They're the ones we should be feeling sorry for because they're about to get it. Let me tell you, friends, when people hate you and speak evil against you for being a Christian and a follower of God and believing the biblical standards of life, and you feel like all of a sudden this isn't your country anymore and these people hate you and you kind of want to hate them back and want to repay bad words and harsh words for bad words and harsh words and you want to fight back with them, listen, you don't need to do that. You need to feel sorry for them. You need to be broken for them because their future is unbelievably tragic. They're going to face the eternal wrath of a holy God for eternity for what they're doing. You don't need to be mad at them. You don't need to fear them. You need to be broken for them. Because what's going to happen to this army out there? So verse 17. So Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, please open his eyes, meaning his servant's eyes, that he may see. It's interesting, Elijah didn't need to have his eyes open. Elijah already knew. But he said, okay, Lord, this one time, for my servant, open his eyes that he may see. In verse 17, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses 
and chariots of fire all around Elijah. They weren't just chariots. <laughs> they were chariots of fire. I don't know what that is, but it's got to be pretty frightening if you're an enemy. These are chariots of fire all around Elisha. The mountain was filled with them. They were there. It's just the servant couldn't see them. Can we go home today if you're a child of God and know that they are there just because we don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. If God would open our eyes, if he would choose to do that, we would see all around us, even in this very room, the presence of the glory of God and his angels. I have a friend of mine, a dear friend named Ron Owens. Ron and Patricia, his wife, traveled all around the globe for generations, really. Uh, decades, I should say, not generations. Decades. Uh, they are old, but they're not that old. For decades, uh, proclaiming the gospel, preaching, singing. Uh, Ron's a very exceptional individual. You can look him up, Google him, Ron Owens. And uh, his book, Return to Worship, is an amazing book that... Uh, has really had a huge impact on my life. Ron's had a huge impact on my life. For some of you know who Henry Blackaby is, Ron and Henry traveled the country and the world together for 25 years or so, teaching together. He was, he was uh, Henry's uh, partner in ministry. And um, his book, Return to Worship, first time I saw it in the early 90s, I picked it up and couldn't put it down. He was talking about worship, and uh, he was way ahead of his time in that. Back in those days... Uh, we were trying to do entertaining worship, and he was reminding us that, uh, that that's not what worship is about. And I'll never forget, there's a, there's a section in that book, and I, it's just one of those things I can't ever get out of my mind. I think about it so often because it's so powerful. Ron, who believes in Scripture and understands the angels are there to worship God and witness of his work, and there are warriors on our, on our behalf or are around us all the time. Ron said he was at a large, huge megachurch one time, and they were having a huge Christmas pageant. And there's nothing particularly wrong with huge Christmas pageants, don't get me wrong. But he said this particular one, they'd gone to tremendous lengths to string up one of these things where an angel would actually sort of slide in on a line and, you know, from the balcony down to the, to the stage and, you know, sort of a very dramatic way with the spotlight on it and kind of surprise everybody as the angel swoops in over the congregation for a very dramatic entrance. And Ron said, sure enough, when that happened, the spotlight came on, the angel came on, and the whole congregation was just, oh, that's the most wonderful thing I've seen. And Ron said, all I could think about was how the angels who were always there looking down thought, well, how silly that is. That's just a man on a rope. We're here every day. You don't even see us. We're so easily entertained and distracted. And how he said how broken those angels must have been, thinking this is what it takes to get people excited, not really seeing who's really in their presence. I never forgot that story. So he says, open the eyes of this my servant. And the Lord opened his eyes, and he saw chariots, and horses, chariots of fire, all around Elijah. Verse 18, And when the Syrians came down against him, Elijah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, according to the prayer of Elijah. And Elijah said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them 
to Samaria. And we could go on. But the point is that we want to talk about and remind you of this morning. It's just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And when you say, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to get through this, this sickness. I don't know how I'm going to get through being this caregiver. I don't know how I'm going to get through this sorrow and this mourning. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. I know it doesn't seem like you can right now. But if you will see what's really there, ask. The, here's what Paul writes in Ephesians. All right? If you want to turn with me, fine. If you want to listen, fine. Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul writes. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remember you in my prayers. Verse 17, listen, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, listen, and revelation in the knowledge of him, verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, Listen, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint? Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and sealed him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills it in all. What Paul is saying to the Ephesians is the same thing Elisha said to his servant. These Ephesians, lift up your eyes and look at what we have. Look at the glory of Christ. Look at the perfection of Jesus. Look at the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. Look that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Look that he's coming again. Look that we have all that we could ever need. He said, just open the eyes of your heart so you can see it. What a glorious prayer for Paul to pray. And not only there, but moving over to Ephesians 3, verse 17. Well, I'll begin with 14. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, listen, to comprehend with all the saints, are you ready? What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And now, unto him, verse 20, who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. We could go on and on with scriptures like that. We would like God to peel back the curtain for a minute and show us, but, but Paul is saying he's there, and by faith we can see him. And that's why we need to be together in the gathered church. That's why you need to come and worship. That's why you need to be in God's word every day. That's why you need to be listening to good podcasts and good Christian music and, and, and reading good... Look, Satan wants to fill our hearts and our minds and our time with all kinds of stuff that makes us question God and question the reality and question his presence. Come to him. And there's so much that will 
reinforce the truth that he is here among us. In the presence of the risen Lord, he is here among us and his angels are among us. And if we could just see what is really out there, he's not forgotten or forsaken us. And you are not alone. And I love the fact that I can say with all authority, based on the authority of God's word, based on the revelation of Jesus Christ, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, based on the promises of God's word, that this apostle Paul says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And how glorious and wonderful that truly is. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you continue to work with each of us, that you never forsake us or leave us, that we can look around us and we can see your heavenly work all around us all the time. So, Lord, there are some folks here today who need to to hear your word like that servant. Some of us are just frightened and scared, and, and for good reason. I mean, the servant, what he saw in those mountains was fearful. It was the strongest army in the region coming for him. Man, we look to Elijah who says, don't worry about it, bro. God's got this one covered. We're way stronger than the enemy. We need to hear that every day. It causes us to love our enemies because we truly feel sorry for them. We know what's in store for them. We don't want to get back at them. We don't want to avenge them. We don't want to teach them a lesson. We're concerned for them. And it causes us to realize our total dependence on Jesus. That we can't do anything, but he can do all things. In his name we pray, amen.